This is Nick Ambrillaro, host of Tiger Talk, a student media podcast based on news for the LSU and Baton Rouge area. we're recording this on Monday, January 31st. And although we don't know if Tom Brady is going to be returning next year, what we do know is the Cincinnati Bengals are making the Super Bowl. Joining us now is Queen City's own Peter Radicus. How are you doing today, Peter? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's any day I can wake up and the Bengals in the Super Bowl is a great day. So, you know, I'm feeling I'm feeling great this this Monday. It's Monday evening. Yeah. I mean, it's been 33 years since the Bengals have actually made a Super Bowl. Uh, last time it was Super Bowl 23 in 1989 so yeah that was on that was far before my time I just remember coming into this season um you know my expectations I was hoping they would make the playoffs and then from there hoping they win a playoff game because they hadn't even done that yet in my lifetime so see them being a Super Bowl I mean it's uh it's beyond exciting yeah quite the journey this season so to get to this the Bengals actually overcame the Chiefs winning an overtime 27-24 coming back from an 18-point deficit just before halftime to do so. So, Peter, what did you see going throughout this whole entire game? Yeah, so it was um, it was a very good game, just subjectively. I mean, it's a really good game from a neutral point of view. Obviously, Kansas City got out to a big lead early. The Bengals really just had no answer for Mahomes and Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey in the first half. And the Chiefs got out to a 21-3 lead. And um, it was a great end of the half. I think that's where everything really, they really started to get the momentum. They got the score, touchdown by Samaj P. Ryan to make it 21-10. And then the goal line stand at the end of the first half to keep it at 21-10 going into halftime, I think that's where the momentum really started to shift in the Bengals' favor going into the second half to ignite the comeback. Yeah, I mean, I definitely saw that too. I mean, what we're talking about is, unfortunately, Eli Apple having a defensive <laughs> penalty a DPI in the end zone I mean he did save a touchdown holding Tyreek there but to come back two plays later and make a touchdown saving tackle and tackling him inbounds and the game or end the half I mean it's a seven point swing right there that he saved yeah I mean it's that was it was a huge play I mean that was where the game really shifted it reminded me of Early, early in the season, my remember early in the season when the Bengals are playing the Jaguars Thursday night football, and the same kind of thing happened. The Bengals are down 14 nothing, going into halftime, and they stopped Trevor Lawrence at the goal line, and that right went into the half. They kept it a two-possession game, and that's what allowed the Bengals to rally and get back in it. And it was the same, same thing um, in this game. Um, you know, Eli Apple. You know, obviously we know, you know, we know his history. We know what he's been up to, but he really um, made a great play, and I think that's what really you know turned the game on its head. Yeah. I mean, the second half, specifically with the defense, because we'll keep on that, the defense held the Chiefs to 83 total yards in both the second half and overtime, three points, and they also had four sacks and two interceptions during that half. So what did you see from the defense particularly that led to that kind of performance? Yeah, I mean, the defense obviously stepped up in a huge way in the second half. The biggest thing, they really just got more aggressive. I mean, you saw the Bengals' defensive line really step up. I mean, Sam Hubbard finished the game with two sacks. Trey Hendrickson had a sack and a half. B.J. Hill played great, had the interception on the RPO. Um, Lou Anarumo, defensive coordinator for the Bengals, just really dialed up the pressure and got aggressive because in the first half, you know, they were kind of playing back a little bit more, allowing the Chiefs to kind of get yards. And when they were really making Mahomes uncomfortable in the second half. It was almost like the Super Bowl last season. He was uncomfortable, and he just couldn't get into the rhythm that allows him to you know, really go crazy like we know Mahomes can do. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the craziest moments near the end of the game, actually, uh, when the Chiefs were unfortunately able to tie it up, uh, 
Mahomes is just scrambling like crazy back there, and they finally get him down. I mean, albeit he gets like a four rush, four yard game to go out, and Trey Henderson is just gassed on the sideline. He is gripping the kicking net, just huffing right there. So, I mean, near the end of the game, that D line was going all out to try to get him down. And I mean, like you said, they were able to make those plays, preventing the Chiefs from getting, you know, those big plays in the end zone. I mean, they had three drives, I think, that were under 15 yards. Two of them were actually net or negative yard drives, three and out situation. And I mean, real credit to the defense and what they were able to do to accomplish that. Uh, what did you see from the offense? Yeah, so um, the offense, you know, early in the game, we were just kind of getting into a rhythm. You know, it was kind of a slow start, which we've seen from the Bengals at times this season. And, um, you know, they had to, as you've seen a lot with the Bengals, he's in the offensive line, you know, can struggle at times. So um, what we saw Zach Taylor and Brian Callahan and Joe Burrow on the offense do was they really focused on getting the ball out of his hands quick. We saw that really, you know, turn out well in the first touchdown. He got the ball out quick to Shamaji P. Ron, and, you know, he kind of did the rest and scored. And I think that's been big for the Bengals, going to continue to be big for them going to the Super Bowl. Getting the ball just to your playmakers. I mean, when you've got guys like Jamar Chase, Joe Mixon, guys like that who can really just operate well in space. I mean, I think that's what's been one of the keys, especially down the stretch in the playoffs, to getting that offense going when it, you know, especially when the offensive line has its struggles. Especially. I mean, even Tony Romo called this out in the second half. It was the first, or I guess the first down plays, it was being aggressive on those, passing for bigger guardage plays and instead of getting those three yard pickups on the run. So having some more aggressiveness was really great for him. Uh, Jamar Chase, you know, he got six targets. I'm sorry, he got nine targets, catching six balls for 54 yards and a touchdown. Touchdown that did lead to a tie game. And, I mean, especially on that two-point that happened thereafter, I thought, one, Kansas City defense totally screwed up that play because you had the outside cornerback just follow Jamar on that, and they just let number 11. Yeah, I mean, Trent Taylor, I mean, not a guy, you know, obviously not a guy that – Many people have really even heard of. I mean, really just plays on special teams, the Palmer Turner for the Bengals. But he came in, it's like the defense didn't even, you know, notice he was there. And, you know, all the focus was on Jamar and allowed Taylor to just get free and, you know, walk right in the end zone on that yeah. two-point play. I mean, Daniel Sorsen, he's been kind of a meme for the Chiefs all season. And, I mean, he was on that play. <laughs> Both yeah. them followed Jamar, and he just slipped right out to catch that two-point. Yep. Yep. So, once this game gets to overtime, we see Joe Burrow on the sideline after that coin toss, and he just kind of lets out, ugh, yeah. getting that. I mean, overtime was pretty – I mean, for me, you get those memories of last week. I mean, it's always fresh in our mind what just happened. But you see that developing. Mahomes gets the ball again in overtime. Is this going to be the end? But Right, yeah. I mean, like you said, I think Joe Burrow said it best after the game. He said, like, you know, when you lose the coin toss to those guys, you know, usually you're, you know, you're going home. But, I mean, once again, the defense and really going into it, you know, there was a part of me that felt that I was like, ah, giving Mahomes the ball in overtime, you just kind of know how this goes. There was other part of me was like, well, with how good the defense has played, you know, in the second half, you know, the defense is still, you know, in a rhythm. I felt confident at least a little bit that they could, they could do it again. And, you know, that's, that's exactly what we saw. We saw – on the drive first, I think it was second down. You saw Eli Apple. <laughs> Eli Apple almost made the game-winning play in a pick six, but, you know, as he often does, <laughs> dropped it. But then the very next play, Patrick Mahomes, and really just an unnecessary throw. I mean, throwing it up into double coverage on third and ten at Tyreek Hill. Um, great play by Jesse Bates, tipped the ball, and then a great interception by Von Bell, and that's what, you know, set it up for Joe Burrow and them to go and win it. Yeah. 
I mean, all the credit to the defense right there and what they were able to accomplish. Uh, look forward to more of our coverage. We're definitely going to be talking about Bengals. We're going to be talking about all the LSU players that are going to be playing in the Super Bowl upcoming, and that's going to be on February 13th. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, obviously you've got, with, you know, with the Bengals, you've got Joe Burrow, you've got Jamar Chase, then you've also got Tyler Shelvin and Thaddeus Moss, although they don't play as much. But then on, on the Rams, you've got Odo Beckham and Andrew Whitworth, two more, you know, great LSU alum. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a great game, you know, for LSU fans to, to watch, Yeah, I think. I yeah. think so, too. So from here, I want to pivot. Peter, you're in charge of the, the men's basketball beat, so I kind of want to talk to you about that and what's been going on with the team. So LSU basketball, men's basketball, they started the season 12-1, and one, and since we turned the calendar to 2022, they're 4-4, four and four, and also 4-4 four and four in the SEC. So this month of January has been a little bit tumultuous, to say the least, and that, uh, excuse me, that stems from a lot of injuries that the team has been having. So what have you been seeing going on? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, injuries has been the biggest thing. It's just a lot of it has been bad luck. I mean, you look at, um, you know, they go into Auburn to start conference play. They, you know, they go in there, tough 15-point loss. But that was a loss that I kind of expected. Obviously, now we see how good of a team Auburn is. And going into a place like Auburn Arena when you've got a really young team, it's always going to be a tough task. But from there, they bounce back, get to, I don't think people, especially at this point, realize that, they still came back and beat Tennessee and Kentucky in consecutive games. I mean, this team is still really good. But then obviously at the end of the Tennessee game, that's where Xavier Pinson gets hurt. And that's where things start to unravel a little bit. You go on the road after that, you get a really impressive win against Florida without without Pinson. And then you return home, play Arkansas. You drop a game that against a good team, but a game at home that you really expect to win. Then you've got Alabama. That's when... Days gets hurt. You lose to Bama, and you spirited come back. And then from there, you've got the, um, the last couple of games. Well, first you had Tennessee, which was another disappointing loss. Come back, beat A&M, um, you know, a game that you kind of expected to win. And then just this past weekend against TCU, another disappointing loss in which they gave up 77 points, which was a, you know, season high. So just it's been it's – been, Tumultuous, I think, is the best way. You know, you described the best. It's how you could describe the month of January, just with everything that's that's happened. But I think, you know, going into the next stretch of the season, I think now is the perfect time to kind of right the ship. Yeah, definitely. I want to take a moment just to talk more about that TCU game. I mean, it's it's fresh in everybody's mind. As of recording this, we're one day away from the Ole Miss game, so can't speak on the future yet. But looking at that TCU top five rebounding team which was a big issue for LSU in that game. They were just getting boxed out and out-rebounded all game. But one thing that you noted after the game was the offensive performances and the lack thereof. I mean, this team going from last year, last season to this season, you lose Cam Thomas to the draft, and he was averaging 23 points per game. And now our highest scorer is Tar Eason, who's just averaging under 16 points. So going forward, how can this team make up offensive performances to try to keep in these games? Yeah, so, I mean, like you said, biggest difference, you know, huge difference personnel-wise from last year's LSU team to this year's LSU team. This team, which has been one of their issues, you know, throughout the season, especially in the tougher games, they don't have that kind of go-to score like they had last year with Cam Thomas and Trenton Wofford and even Javante Smart at times. They don't have a guy you can just kind of, you know, give the ball to, get out of the way, and he can go make it happen for you down the stretch. They had that in Adam Miller before the season, but obviously he tears ACL. He's out for the season. So now, you know, you don't really have that guy who can, you know, be, you know, you're just your go-to guy on offense. And the other issue with the way LSU plays on offense, they don't run a lot of sets. They don't run a lot of plays. You know, you don't see – 
just because that's not, you know, the kind of offense that Will Wade is used to running. You don't see a lot of movement and guys creating looks for each other on offense. They're best when they're in transition. So when they get into the half-court setting, that's where they, you know, start to struggle a little bit. And I think the best way to improve that, I mean, I'm no coach, you know, so, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to draw up some master scheme that's going to fix everything. But it's just you got to create movement on offense. LSU is best when they can get the ball into the paint because they're not a great shooting team. If you can get the ball into the paint, play inside out, because going into this past game, TCU wasn't a great shooting team or a great scoring team either. But what they did great, offensive rebound, obviously, but then they did a really good job of working it inside out and really keeping LSU guessing defensively. And I think that's the kind of strategy that LSU is going to have to implement on offense to really get them going in the half court. Yeah, definitely. I mean, looking ahead in the month of February, and even into the two games for SEC tournament in March, the only ranked opponent we have currently is Kentucky at number five. And we're seven games out from that, I think, right now. So there's definitely optimism going ahead. They can definitely get some games going, get on a streak. But, I mean, what do you see going forward? Yeah, so like I said earlier, this is the perfect time to write the ship. Um, you know, in their next few games, they've got Ole Miss and Vanderbilt this week, two of the teams at the bottom in the SEC. And then you've got you've got Texas A&M again, you've got Georgia, and you've got South Carolina before you go to Kentucky. All of those games and Mississippi State. I'm sorry, all of those games are very are very winnable games. All of those teams, except for Mississippi State, are at 500 or below in SEC play. And so, in this especially now, we saw Xavier Pinson finally get some minutes against TCU, albeit in a very limited role. Darius Days seems to be back at full strength, and he's only going to get better, you know, as the games go on. I think this is the perfect time for LSU to start to get healthy and really start to go on that run towards the end of the season. Um, with everyone healthy, I think this team is still really good. I saw, I think it was one of the commentators noted before the TCU game, when LSU has their, you know, normal starting lineup they had coming into the season, they're undefeated because even the Auburn game before everyone got hurt, Brandon Murray didn't play. So when they have the typical starting lineup of Pinson, Murray, Wilkinson, Days, and Reed, they have not lost a game all season. So I think once they get back healthy, especially over this stretch where they don't have the toughest schedule, I think it's the perfect time for them to really get on that run going into March and going into the postseason. Exactly. I mean, defense has been their killer for them, and going forward, it's definitely an opportunity to get better. I mean, they are now ranked 25th. They've been falling in the standings because of those losses. But, you know, maybe it's best to not have a target on their back as we approach everything going forward. Right, and if you really look at it, you know, Technically, the rankings don't really matter a whole lot. It's not like college football where, you know, you're working, you want to get into the the top four so you can get into the playoffs. I mean, it's really about, you know, obviously, you know, ranking is a byproduct of success. You know, if you win games, you're going to go up in the rankings. But it's really about getting the good wins and avoiding the bad losses so that when March comes around, for a team like LSU, who you pretty much know is going to be in the tournament, is getting that that good seed. Because you don't want to end up like last year where you're an eight seed and you're going to play the one seed in the second round. You want to try to get a, a top five seed, which I think is what LSU's goal is going to be. Absolutely. Well, we can look forward to that and everything that they're building on going forward. All right, Peter, I want to thank you for coming on, and where can we find you? Yeah, for sure. So Twitter, it is Peter underscore Routerkus. Um, Routerkus spelled R-A-U-T-E-R-K-U-S. Um, Instagram, Peter dot R-A-U-T-I. That's where I'm the most active. So, um, so yeah, no, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming.
the Louisiana legislator will decide in March at the next legislative session what to do with a significant surplus of cash available to the state. Ahead of this, the Reveille will be dedicating a string of stories looking at the current LSU infrastructure. One of those reporters working on this ongoing series is Maddie Scott. Maddie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about you? Doing well. So the first story in the series deals with the Renewable Natural Resources Building and what's been going on there. And with that, there was $2.6 million in repairs that, according to the LSU Deferred Maintenance list. So your next story is about the LSU Library. What kind of got you rolling on that story? So I'm a freshman, right? And basically, campus is kind of my home, and I'm at the library very frequently. And I was on the fourth floor one day, and I saw these, you know, giant purple garbage cans and these plastic tarps weighed down with water on the ceiling. And, you know, I thought to myself, I was like, is this normal? Is is this the standard for LSU? I, I just didn't really have a reference if that was normal or not. Um, and I cared about my day. And about Christmas break, uh, I was on Twitter and I saw people kind of tweeting out um, pictures of these garbage cans on the fourth floor of the, of the LSU library. And I was like, okay, so this is definitely, you know, a problem. And I pitched it to my editor and I wrote a story about it and it was very fascinating to cover. Yeah. So what did you find in this report? Um, basically I, um, you know, I interviewed, uh, Roger Husser, who's the vice president of, um, design, construction and planning of LSU. And I basically talked to him about it and he mentioned to me that, you know, LSU is going to be, you know, giving a, um, put, they're putting aside money for a temporary roof within the next eight to 12 months. Um, and he also told me that LSU Library plans to be knocked down in the um, master plan, which is essentially a framework of, you know, de- redesigns construction and of infrastructure and buildings across LSU campus. And it's looking within the next couple of few decades, really. And one of the main things on there is the demolition of LSU Library and then they're going to be reconstructing a new student library. And um, the thing about that is a, there are a couple of student senators who noticed that, you know, this demolition has been being put off for years. And, you know, a student library is vital to students. You know, that's kind of like the backbone of where we're doing our studying and researching and such. And if we don't have a you know, a, a good library that has, you know, a secure roof, you know, that's how can we study there in a relaxing space if, you know, there's water leaking. So um, I talked to a couple of student senators and they made um, legislation to prioritize the construction of a new LSU library. And um, I talked to them about it and got some killer quotes uh, I was Miles McLendon and Sam Staggs, and they did fantastic. Yeah. I mean, this being the state university, I mean, the LSU library was built in 1958. And when you see that compared to even like PFT and what's going on down there, it's it's kind of an eyesore when you walk in there mm-hmm. and see what's going on. And I was one of the things that Miles said, kind of talking about that, is when he toured LSU um, before he was a freshman. Um, he said that 
LSU tours purposely, you know, didn't show him the library. There's a reason why they didn't take him to the library and, you know, took him to PFT and and stuff like that. You know, the newer buildings that are wanted to be shown off. Um, And I thought that was so true. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole repair process, like you said, it's eight to 12 months out. It's going to cost, you know, $450,000. But, you know, students are kind of a little upset with everything going on. I mean, one of the notes that you made in your story is just even with the new coaching contracts that have been going out to our head coaches. I mean, we're still paying for the former one, and now we just signed a huge, large contact or contract going forward. So how's been how's the reception going on that? Um, I feel like that was something definitely noticed with when the Washington Post published that article. And it, I believe the headline was something around, you know, LSU just signed like this giant football contract. Meanwhile, you know, Baton Rouge is people in Baton Rouge are struggling to pay rent. Um, and when that came about, I interviewed Miles a little bit after that. Um, and he mentioned, you know, LSU signed that giant contract while, you know, the LSU library is leaking in the basement and the fourth floor is leaking there. Um, and so the there's a lot of questioning coming from LSU students and even faculty saying, um, you know, we're an academic university, so why is it when we walk into Tiger Stadium, it's completely pristine, and then we walk into LSU library, you know, a very academic building, and it's falling apart. I mean, to your point, Scott Woodward just sent out an email asking, you know, what can we do to renovate Tiger Stadium some more? Yeah, yeah. It's it's never enough, it almost feels like. So, yeah, it's it's surprising. So when they do eventually knock down the library, what do they plan on doing with that space? So I was looking at – by the way, all of this – the whole master plan is published – on the LSU website, um, it's the 2017 master plan, and it is a 166-paged PDF. So, and it covers all sorts of things. Um, looking to the next few decades, like I was saying, um, just completely replanning LSU campus, and they have all sorts of designs and illustrations. V- you know, visualizing what campus is going to look like. And some particular illustrations that I was looking at is kind of the quad area. And so what they plan on doing there, they're going to knock down LSU Library. They're going to open up the quad. I believe they're also going to be, I believe they're also demolishing Lockett. Um, And they're going to be, you know, adding, creating plazas, um, building several new academic buildings. And then most of all, the thing that I focused on my article is they're building a new student library. And I talked to the chief financial officer of LSU, Donna Torres, and she, you know I was asking her, oh my gosh, what's this new student library going to be like? Like, that's a big deal. And she mentioned it's going to be less books and more technology. Um, I mean, with the internet age, students don't read as much. So there's going to be off-site storage of books. Um, and so if a student orders a book, it's going to be, you know, taken from that off, off-site storage site. Um, and then the student will be able to pick it up. Um, 
it's going to be largely research-based. There's going to be, um, I believe, Center of Academic Success is going to be moved into the student library. Um, testing centers are going to be moved into the student library. It's uh, also referred to as the learning commons. So it's like less so a library and it's more so a general area for that, that just provides students of resources that they have to use. So any sort of recess that resource that they come into contact with a lot. It's all going to be in that one centralized sort of place. So it's very convenient. I mean, definitely. Centralization is good, you know, going one spot for everything. Yes. So as this being an ongoing series, is there anything else that you're going to be covering? Any previews you got lined up for us? So um, today, I believe we just published the story about Herget Hall. And it's kind of like an investigation about, you know, the current state of it um i believe i I read the article today and it was like in some article of some year i can't remember the numbers but it was ranked like number the 12th worst dorm in the united states (laughs) don't quote me on that but i believe that was the number Um, not a good ranking (laughs) not a good ranking and so we published that today um some of the problems within the dorm is that there's like a students frequently find geckos in you know just throughout the building um peter trenicost the head of residential life he there's like a quote in there of of him kind of like speculating he thinks it's because hergert hall is right by the lakes Mm. and that the geckos are getting in through there um but it's it's a really neat article and i i encourage everyone to go read it um I don't know how much I can say about, you know, articles that haven't been released yet, but I will say I am working on, you know, similar to the Herget Hall investigation, I'm working on like a Pentagon community sort of investigation and still doing interviews and it's it's pretty fun. I'm enjoying it. Awesome. And I can't wait for it to be published. Yeah. I mean, this whole series is going to be ongoing up until March, correct? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Maddie, I want to say thank you for having, coming on and where can we all find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mad Scotty. I believe it's spelled as like M A D S C O T T Y Y. Awesome. <laughs> so give me a follow. And also on the Reveille. Yes, absolutely on the Reveille. Perfect. All right. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. If you're interested in following the LSU Reveille, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LSU Reveille. For KLSU Radio, you can find them on Instagram at KLSU FM and live on 91.1 FM.